thing, whether by road, rail, air, or sea, can be a trying experience. Take the story of Andy Parson from Manchester. His recent trip from France to England was dubbed by the Telegraph newspaper as the amazing odyssey of airline passenger. His nightmare began when his two-hour flight from Angers, France was cancelled. He was then bused to Nantes Airport and tried to get a connection back to England but missed the last flight home. So, six and a half hours after he should have been in the air, he was flown to Cork in the Republic of Ireland, where he stayed overnight. And the next morning, he took a two-hour taxi trip to Waterford, Ireland. But on arrival, discovered that that flight too had been cancelled due to bad weather. It was a further bus journey later when he finally arrived in Dublin, and lo and behold, to his eternal surprise, the connection was there. His estimated travel time was only two hours, but his actual total travel time was 30 hours. But as we continue our series in Hebrews this morning, titled Living by Faith, we consider a journey that makes that modern example seem positively pedestrian. It was the journey of a man named Abraham, who set out from one of the great cities in the ancient world, named Ur, heading west, and briefly settling in a place called Haran. He then left his wider family behind, and headed south to the land of Canaan. And from there he was forced to move on two occasions, further south to Egypt, because of famine. And even upon returning to the promised land, for the rest of his years, he lived a nomadic life as a pilgrim. Total travel time for Abraham, 100 years. From the age of 75 to 175. And get this, he never reached his final destination. Now, what was the secret of Abraham's sustaining power? As we continue our studies in Hebrews this morning, and as we arrive at the 8th verse of Hebrews chapter 11, we find the answer. Because the author says that by faith, Abraham obeyed and went. His pilgrimage was fueled by his faith and obedience working together. And therefore this morning, I'd like you to consider with me this crucial relationship between faith and obedience. So would you turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 10. And it would help to have a Bible open this morning at the passage. Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham, 
when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Amen. Now, here we see in outline what is, so to speak, the anatomy of Abraham's faith, the constituent parts which were involved in it. And as we consider these, I'm indebted for my headings to Warren Wearsby and his book, Run with the Winners, which I simply couldn't improve upon. So first of all, faith involved for Abraham his listening ears. By faith, verse 8 says, Abraham, when called, obeyed and went. Before Abraham heeded God's word, he heard God's word. Before he lived an upright life, he first of all listened to the utterance of the living God. It's actually a very important insert in the flow of Hebrews chapter 11. And indeed in the three chapters, Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. Because all the emphasis here is on the positive consequence of faith. That faith is the power source of perseverance. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, just to refresh your memory, the author speaks of this fact that faith is our enablement to continue. Faith keeps us from shrinking back to destruction and enables us to go forward unto salvation. And then Hebrews 11 follows with all these examples which are illustrative of the fact that faith indeed does what it says on the tin. And then as we come into the 12th chapter of Hebrews, the writer brings all of this together with an exhortation. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Let us then run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You see, the emphasis is all upon persevering faith. What, in other words, faith achieves. And I think it's for this very reason that this is an important little inclusion in verse 8. That Abraham was called. The author says, let's be clear, the consequences of Abraham's faith were preceded by the calling of that faith. It was when he was called he obeyed and went. Now if you turn to Genesis chapter 12, incidentally, where this uh, account is expanded upon, you discover that this is the emphasis. The emphasis falls on God's initiative in calling Abraham. We read that the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Notice, it's all about what the Lord is going to do. What I will do, he says. 
And this is a breath of fresh air. If you've been reading up to this point, Genesis 1 to 11, and if you've seen how so far human initiative has really got us nowhere, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, no less than three major judgments have fallen on the people of earth. Man has been banished from the garden, almost wiped off the face of the earth by a flood. And only in the chapter prior, God has confused their language and thwarted an attempted mutiny against him. It's fair to say that at this point, human initiative, human ingenuity hasn't got us very far. And therefore, God steps into the situation and he does so by speaking and calling Abraham. Actually, quite a remarkable thing. For those of us that have read the Bible for some time, this seems unsurprising. Of course he called Abraham. But in actual fact, the book of Joshua tells us that before Abraham was called, he worshipped other gods. Joshua 24 verse 2. Abraham was a polytheist. He lived in Ur, one of the great cities of the ancient world, but one of the most religious cities with a pantheon of gods. It's interesting to note in passing that Abraham's father, his name Terah, Terah is associated to the Hebrew word for moon. He was probably a moon worshipper, one of the great cults in Ur at this time. And so I suppose that if Abram were living in the 21st century, maybe here in the city of Edinburgh, he might have fitted right in with the kind of pluralistic style that we so often see, with all his toes dipped in the various waters of various spiritual perspectives. Maybe doing perhaps some yoga on his lunch hour. Maybe checking his lucky stars in the Sunday broadsheet. Perhaps arranging his home in a feng shui style. Much the modern man, spirituality, he's got it. And yet with little interest in ultimate truth. And yet God calls Abraham's. God calls you this morning, regardless of the mix, the spiritual swim that you've been involved in in the past. Maybe, in fact, one of the reasons that you're here this morning and each week is that Christianity is one of your irons in the fire. And yet God calls you uniquely to himself, as he did with Abraham. Now, we do need to be a little bit careful, however, as we think of Abraham's calling. And we must remember the fact that it was a very specific case. At this time, there was no people of God. This was God creating a people for himself. So it wasn't as if God could have sent a missionary to sort of give Abraham this message. It was very direct. But we do know that in Scripture, it is in fact a general principle that God calls people to himself. He delivers a message to people, and through that message, he calls upon them to believe. You ever wondered the fact that the way of salvation is not a grand portrait that we view and are impressed by. It is a message that we hear and believe. Paul the Apostle writes, that faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. That's why every week, as you come into church, the prime responsibility of the preacher is to tell you something. There is a message to be communicated because God transforms lives through a message. 
It's an unchanging message every week. That God is our creator. That we have rejected him. We are heading headlong towards his just condemnation. But that Jesus Christ died as our substitute in our place for our forgiveness and eternal life when we believe him. That is the message, friends, that changes lives. And I remind you this morning, if you are a Christian, this is our absolute imperative as part of God's people to be proclaiming this message. If we do not herald it, how will people hear and believe? See, you might say, well, many people who hear the gospel don't believe it. Now, that's true. But there are not any who believe the gospel who don't hear it. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's not a palatable message today, of course. And yet, as we see in Abram's example, the call of God is powerful. It's Paul that said again in Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto the salvation of everyone who believes. J.C. Royal, the Bishop of Liverpool, some 100 years ago, Uh, wrote some wonderful books, and yet his conversion story was wonderfully simple. He said that he was sitting in church one morning, and he came to faith just by hearing one verse being read in church. It wasn't even a sermon, it was the reading before the sermon. The verse was Ephesians 2, verse 8. By faith are you saved, and it is not of yourselves, It is the gift of God. And with that, he was a Christian. And therefore, that's the message we preach every week. Because it has that power to penetrate the human heart. And so I say to you this morning also, if you are not a Christian today, what Jesus once said to the crowds who gathered to hear his preaching, let those with ears to hear, hear the anatomy of Abram's faith. It included listening ears, and yet true faith goes further than just the hearing. The person who hears the word, heeds the word. If the word is truly heard, it will be fully obeyed. This is the second evidence of Abram's faith. His obedient feet. We read that by faith. Abraham, when called, obeyed and went. Disobedience, which is described in the rest of the following verses. And it seems that the author's goal is to show the full scope of Abram's obedience. Just consider the following. Abram obeyed God without hesitation. He obeyed and went, it says in verse 8. End of quote. He didn't invoke a cool-off period. He didn't check his diary to see what he might be doing for the next 100 years. He didn't call a committee together and ask for their opinion. But after the call in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, verse 4 simply follows with, So Abraham left. Simple as that. His obedience was shown by his immediate response. Notice too that he obeyed without destination. He did not know where he was going. Verse 8 follows. 
And we sometimes gain a small sense of this, don't we? If someone takes us out for a meal, but we don't know which restaurant we're going to. There's a bit of an element of surprise in that. Or perhaps we even go on a holiday trip, maybe. And it's a surprise where we're heading to initially. But just imagine moving your house and your home with no indication of where you were going. Just pack up the car, get the family on board, forget the map, and just head out. That's what Abraham did. He obeys without destination. And notice too that when he arrives in the country, he continues without citizenship. He lives, said the writer, like a stranger. Canaan was, of course, his inheritance. And yet during his lifetime, he lived like a pilgrim there. Exemplified by the following statement as well, that he lived without a city. He lived in tents, it says. See, this is a full-orbed obedience. And the writer really wants to press this home to these Jewish Christians. Surely at this point, they would have been saying, Amen, to everything the writer was saying. Abraham was their hero in obedience. And yet as they come to the start of the verse, the point begins to hit home. That it was by faith Abraham obeyed. The source of his obedience was his faith. There wasn't a good thing Abraham had ever done that didn't come from faith. And it's as if the author is trying to say, if you want to live like Abraham lived, if you really want to please God, then you can't go back on faith to the old way of simply trying to obey without trust. Friends, this is a principle that we need to hear and every generation has to understand. The principle is that faith precedes obedience. Some people, you see, come at it the wrong way, don't they? They try to build the infrastructure of an obedient life. And they don't first put in place the foundation, which is faith. And the house topples. And it can only be so because, as Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And Paul says, this righteousness from God comes by faith from first to last. And underscore that word first. And so, if you're coming this morning and saying, what do I need to do to be saved? And here the answer Jesus gave to some religious people who asked that same question. Jesus said, the work, first and foremost, is to believe in the one God has sent. Faith precedes obedience. And also, and this is equally significant, faith produces obedience. That's what we learn here. Abram's obedience pleased God because it was generated by faith. Indeed, it was possible because faith was powering it. And therefore, if we become true believers, the last thing that we say is that sin doesn't matter. The last thing we say is that disobedience is inconsequential. We won't be found saying, as some are found to say, let us sin that grace may abound. We won't say that. Because the root of saving faith is evidenced by the fruit of obedience. Just imagine that I said to you, and I'm not a gardener, But let's say I come to you and said, I'm going to plant an apple tree in your garden. I've got some seeds that I'm going to put in the ground. 
and you watch and see what happens. That's my profession of what I've put in there, and you believe me, perhaps at the time. However, over the years, the tree grows up, and never, not even once, do you see a single piece of fruit. Never mind an apple. Well, would you not contest my original profession? Would you not say to me, then where is the fruit that comes from the root, from the seed? And it's the same, you see, of a Christian a genuine Christian, if the seed of faith is planted in the soil of our hearts, sooner or later, some fruit must come. I mean, take Paul in Galatians chapter 5. He seems so hard-line. He says that those who engage, who live in idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord, in drunkenness and orgies and the like, He says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you were to say to him, well, Paul, what if there's some faith hiding under there somewhere? I think Paul would say to us, if there is faith, then where is the fruit? The very fruit of the Spirit that he goes on in the next verse to identify and explain. And so this morning, this is a challenge partly to examination, to examine our hearts. If we profess faith in Jesus Christ, is there some evidence of the obedience that comes from faith? Not a life of perfection, of course, but progression, certainly. See, some of us are professors of faith with a capital P. We lecture on all the subjects. We can tell you doctrine inside out. And yet our lives neglect what we profess. Abram's faith was evidenced by his obedience. He had listening ears and he had obedient feet. And that is not all. Finally, in the anatomy of Abraham's faith, he had steady eyes. Steady eyes. Uh, Just the other week, my wife and I were heading out to a wedding and uh, Nikki had bought an outfit, as you do, for these occasions, and she wanted my opinion on it. Can't understand why she wanted my opinion. So, you know how this conversation goes if you're married. <laughs> what do you think? To which I responded, it's nice. And then she said, you didn't even look. <laughs> to which I protested, I did look. But you see, the thing was that her definition of looking and my definition were very different. For me, it was more of a quick glance, whereas she wanted a more considered estimation. And you know, as we come to verse 10, very interesting, when it says that Abraham was looking forward, the word for look is not the usual one in the New Testament. That just means to look for however long or short a period. The Colin Adams look, if you like. No, this is a different word. It's a word that's used only eight times. And very interestingly, in John chapter 5. Remember that story that is set by the fountain in Jerusalem. And all the infirmed are lying there waiting for the waters to ripple. Because the thought was that when an angel would come, he would ripple the waters and the first in would get healed. And John makes this comment that those who were waiting there by the fountain were looking towards the water. It's a steady, 
intent gaze. And Abram has this kind of steady gaze in terms of the things he is looking forward to towards. What Abram saw, a land to inhabit. He understood, according to verse 8, that there was a place he would later receive as an inheritance. He understood that Canaan wasn't just any land, it was the promised land, quote-unquote. The Lord had said to him, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And Abram believed that aspect of the promise. And yet he also saw that this would not happen immediately, nor in his lifetime. But down the generations, he perceived a people to inherit. That's the significance of the little phrase in verse 9. Abram lived in tents, as did Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He understood that it would be through his children's children's children that the promise would be finally inherited. And it's something that, incidentally, wasn't easy to believe. Bearing in mind that when this promise was given, Abram was aged and his wife was barren. And if you want to hear more about that miracle, come along tonight. That's the sermon this evening. He also saw, however, a city to indwell. And I think this is most amazing of all. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. In Hebrews, this city that is referred to is no ordinary city. It always refers to the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. So in the very next chapter, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Hebrews 12.22 And it is a city that is described as having foundations. Now, what does that mean? As you read in Revelation chapter 21, when this same city is mentioned, and you could look at this later for further study, you see there that a third of the description is given to the foundations. There's the gates, there's the walls, but there's the foundations described in great detail. And foundations speak of permanence. Foundations speak of perpetuity. They pertain to stability, something which lasts and endures. In absolute contrast to Abram's tents. I mean, it's very interesting. Tents were the very symbol of a nomadic lifestyle. The pilgrim life. Appropriate for a person who is on the way and who has not yet arrived. And it makes me wonder... In the transfiguration story, whether this explains one detail, you remember that Jesus had taken some of his disciples up into a mountain. And there, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious form with Jesus. And Peter, one of the disciples, well-meaning, said, why don't I set up a couple of tents, a couple of shelters for the three of you? And his offer was rejected. Now, there may have been a number of reasons for that. But maybe one of the reasons was that for Moses and Elijah, dwellers in an enduring city, it would have been inappropriate to go back to tents because they dwell in the enduring city, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
And this is what sustained Abram through his pilgrimage because he recognized throughout his life that he was a stranger and he was an exile. He hadn't arrived just as we haven't arrived yet. And we have to bear this in mind all the time. That we are not settlers. We have not to get comfortable here. We are pilgrims and exiles and strangers who are heading for home. We need to be more like children. You know when they're traveling along in the car for a while and uh, they might appreciate to a very small degree the importance of the journey. But they're constantly asking, are we there yet? They're constantly looking for the destination. That really should be what the Christian is like. I wonder this morning, where are our eyes fixed? In spiritual terms, how is our eyesight this morning? Are we short-sighted with our gaze only trained on the present, on the immediate, on the temporal, and the fleeting? Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a Christian and a politician, once remarked, if I could point to one single basic feeling out of which the structure of my mind and thought and belief came, it would be this, that I don't belong here. And that should be true of us. So in conclusion, what have we learned from this study of Abram this morning? Many things. It's a very rich passage. But at very least, we've learned that preceding faith is the call of God. So, are we listening today? We've learned also that flowing from faith is our faithful response. So, are we obeying this morning? And we've learned also that in front of our faith, Pulling us forward, if you like, is our future perspective. So are we looking ahead this morning? See, when this anatomy of faith is in place, when it's working, we will be conspicuous for Christ, our motto as a church, in a most remarkable way. Like Abraham, who was a compelling witness to the generations beyond we will be a compelling witness to our community. There's a story about Charles Darwin, the famous scientist, who, as you know, was not very sympathetic to Christian things. But he went on this remarkable tour to Tierra del Fuego. He went on three occasions. And the first time he went to the islands, he discovered the inhabitants living in moral depravity. Even Darwin just couldn't believe the low standards of the culture. But when he returned some years later, he was amazed at the change. And he discovered that in the intervening years, missionaries had brought the Bible to the inhabitants. The gospel had been preached. They had heard it and they had believed it. And their behavior was altered. One Darwin biographer writes, the change for the better was so indescribable that Darwin not only testified his astonishment, but became a regular contributor to the mission society. 
What would it be if our lives were so transformed by our faith, if we not only said that we believed, but lived what we believed, how much more would the world take notice of what we say? So may we have faith as we're thinking in this series, but may obedience flow from it. Let us pray.